Hey there, Book Riot Podcast listeners. We are mixing things up a little bit today to share a preview of another podcast that we've been enjoying and that we think y'all will be into as well. It's called Talk Easy with Sam Fragasso, and it's a different kind of interview show than you're probably used to. Sam explores questions big and small through dialogues that are driven by curiosity, compassion, and an abundance of research. That sentence probably tells you why Jeff and I are fans. Each Sunday, Sam invites actors, writers, activists, and musicians to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways that you probably haven't heard them do before. Uh, Some of our favorite interviews include talks with Ocean Vuong, Nikki Giovanni, George Saunders, Roxane Gay, and Glory Edom, who, of course, you know we are big fans of here at the Book Riot podcast. In today's preview, y'all will hear Sam in conversation with journalist and bestselling author Michael Lewis. Listeners of this show, of course, know that Jeff and I appreciate Michael Lewis's ability to really present complex ideas and systems through compelling stories. You've probably heard us refer to our all-time fave, The Undoing Project, in which he explored Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky's groundbreaking research about cognitive biases. If you haven't read Michael Lewis before, you might still be familiar with his work from having seen Moneyball or The Big Short or The Blind Side, all of which are based on his books. Or maybe you know him from his podcast, Against the Rules, which takes a hard look at what's happened to fairness in American society and is back for its third season today. So be sure to check that out after you've finished listening here. Anyway, Y'all know we're big fans of Michael Lewis, so this clip is a treat for us, and we're really excited to be able to share it with you. You'll hear Sam and Michael discuss Michael's 2021 book, The Premonition, which I've talked about on the show as one of my favorite reads of 2021. It's the story of a group of medics and scientists who attempted to get the U.S. government to take the pandemic response seriously at the very outset. That might sound heavy, but as you'll hear in the clip ahead, the episode was much lighter. It's a great conversation. They also talk about Michael's approach to creating a relationship with the people he writes about, covering President Obama, and the power of luck. We hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Michael Lewis as much as we did. You can hear the full episode and more from Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso wherever you get your podcasts. Often people think of you and, and they wonder, how do these subjects sort of entrust you with their stories? And it seems to me that, that your method of building that trust comes from an incident in 1982 where you're out of college looking for a job and you apply to uh, accompany wealthy teenage girls across Europe. Which is a sentence I have never said on this show. <laughs> yeah. That job, it, w- it was the most expensive trip that 17-year-old girls ever went on. And the tour group, it was called Brown Lad, um, would hire tour guides from basically from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. And the parents felt reassured because, my God, these are recent graduates of Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. How bad could it be? Well, let me tell you, it could, it, it doesn't, that doesn't prevent problems. But it was a wonderful trip, and it was a great time. But the, the point of the story is how I got hired, because they were actually extremely desirable jobs. And the fellow who ran the, the company, it was a wonderful guy named Robbie Brown, would have you into his office to interview. 
So I go to his office to interview and he's, he's like in a state of chaos and incredibly apologetic. I'm so sorry. I know you were here for the interview, but they've just made me, they're just saying, making me move the furniture from my office to this office down the hall. And he goes, oh, like he just thought of it. Like, could you help, could you help me? So we spent an hour instead of interviewing, moving this furniture together. And at the end he goes, I'll call you. We'll figure out another time. And instead of calling me, he, to tell, say we figured out another time, he calls me and said, you got the job. Now, flash forward to like four months later, and I'm in a, a, a hotel in, somewhere in, in Belgium, with, and I, we're, we're in bed with the other two leaders. We're, we've got these, you know, we're all bunking together. And I, I mentioned this weird, I like, how do I got this job thing to these other leaders? And the other one goes, he, I moved that furniture. I moved, that, <laughs> I moved that furniture from one office to another. And I realized what he had done is he's decided that talking to someone is not nearly as good as doing something with them. And that when you do something with someone, you see their, you see their character in action in a way you might not if you're just talking to them. So I tried to do that with my subjects. And when I'm doing that with my subjects, by definition, they're doing it with me. So they get to see me and I get to see them. Like I'm never more likely to help with the dishes than the first time I have a dinner with at a subject's house. And it isn't because I, I'm naturally the person to help with the dishes. It's that I want to do something with them. And it's, it's, it is one way. It, it, this is, it's like how you get someone to trust you, but that, that sounds sinister. What I'm trying to really do, because I don't want them to trust me if they don't trust me. Like I don't want to trick them into trusting me because that will vanish. What I'm hoping to establish is that they can get to know me and in getting to know me, they will genuinely trust me. So it's just a trick of how you let someone get to know you. To the extent that I'm asking them to let me participate in their lives, there's no way that's going to happen if I'm just this black box. That they don't, they don't, you know, this is not going to happen. They, got, they need to understand what interests me. They need to understand how my mind works, what, what I'm kind of thinking about things, uh, how I move through the world. All that's really important. So... It's less like an artificial journalist subject relationship than it is just like a, an ordinary relationship. I'm going on a trip with somebody, a total stranger, and I'm going to get to know them in the bargain. Now, in 2012, when you embark on doing a six-month piece on Obama, are you ever concerned at some point, he may not like me very much? <laughs> yeah, you know, well, um, with Obama... Um, I tell you, it's, it's so funny. The first encounter I had with him was in the Oval Office. And like the first question he asked me, uh, what, he was saying how much he liked the movie of The Big Short. And he said, did you have anything to do with that? And I said, no. He said, I thought not. I thought it was all Adam McKay. <laughs> he, he was always giving me shit. I mean, he was like from the get-go giving me shit. And from the get-go, I was taking the shit because it was kind of funny shit. But the thing I was interested in writing about him was so not a political piece in a way. It was so, it was just, I want to show the reader what it feels like to be president, no matter what your politics are. Like, this is just the job. It's such a weird job. No matter how well you do it, like some large number of people are going to think you're the devil. And so because he got into the spirit of it, more or less, we never really had that much friction. There was one moment. There was one moment, and it was it was a kind of like I saw a bit of like a flash of anger is too strong a word, but like contempt. I was trying to force him into a place where he hadn't been in his head before. 
And so I had half an hour with him. It was on Air Force One. I sat down and I said, I only got 30 minutes this time. I want to play a game. And the game is, in 30 minutes, you're like wiped off the planet. And I'm going to replace you. I'm going to be president of the United States. 30 minutes, you've got to give me all the advice I need to be a good president of the United States. And it took, I'm telling you, it took five minutes before he agreed to play the game because he kept saying, like, you're not president. You're never, <laughs> you're never going to be president. You could never be president. What are you talking <laughs> It was, it was, it was, he, his mind rebelled at the very idea of someone like me assuming his responsibilities. So <laughs> that, that, um, that was the one moment I saw the kind of like potential contempt. To be fair, weren't you taking a nap prior to that 30 minute interaction? Yeah, they came and woke me up. <laughs> that, that, that's well, but it had been a long day. But yes, that was often like a little compartment and you never knew when they were going to call you. And I think, yeah, they shoved me on the shoulder and they said, president's waiting. <laughs> it was, there are all these boxes you really need to tick if you're going to be president. And I don't tick many of them. Your ability to put people in real life situations, I'm immediately thinking back to one of your most famous characters in Billy Bean and how the two of you would drive to minor league baseball games in Modesto. And it's funny, you know, I've done, as you, as you can probably tell, an unreasonable amount of research for this. And something I found in you is your sort of Obama-like resistance to going to places that you may have not gone before or, or rather don't want to go. And I wonder, is it because you spend a lifetime writing other people's stories? D do, you, do you better understand your subjects than yourself? <laughs> Even if true, it's not that damning because I understand my subjects pretty damn well. But it's a... Um, this is fair. This is fair. And I'll tell you why it's, I, I, you, you were close to a nerve. That Billy Bean and I have in our makeup, in our kind of psychology, a lot in common. And um, I don't know, I just, and I recognized it pretty quickly. And Billy Bean was the toughest nut to crack. You talked about these drives to Modesto. The reason they ended up being important was that afterwards, it was dark on the way home. And in the darkness of the car, he would say things about, in answers to questions, that he would never speak of if it were there was light. It was like he had to be al feel alone to say these things. And I, I completely related to that. I completely related to his resistance to any kind of like psychoanalysis and you know, or even character analysis. And you know what it is? It's his resistance to being understood. Because once you're understood, you're in a box. Once you're understood, you're in a corner. And what Billy Bean, what the, the character trait that I recognized in me, in him that I have, is a kind of claustrophobia. It's we, we're terrified of being trapped. And so we're always kind of looking for where the exit is. And he and this is this expressed itself in the way he managed his baseball team, and it expresses itself in the way he manages his life and his friendships. And I'm a bit that way. The minute I feel like a box is closing in on me, I get an axe and I hack off one side of it. I don't spend a lot of time trying to understand. Do you myself. think you best understand people upon putting them down on the page? 
Yes. Otherwise, I'm too lazy. It forces me to grapple with my understanding of them. So in a funny way, I know Charity Dean better than I know, um, you know, my best friend, uh, because I haven't grappled with him in words. In another way, no, knowing in some senses being uh, the ability to predict, I'm probably better able to predict what my best friend will do than what, what Charity Dean will do. But but, but not by much. Uh, the, act of, the act of reducing people to a character on a page l- leads you to a higher understanding of the person. You go back to Princeton in 2012, and you give a speech on the role of luck. And so many people look at your career and, and they think, incredibly successful, sort of prodigious talent, um, um, prolific, all these things. And yet, in front of these graduating kids who are finishing this, this great school and are going on to start their lives in some way, you say, Don't be deceived by life's outcomes. Life's outcomes, while not entirely random, have a huge amount of luck baked into them. Above all, recognize that if you had success, you've also had luck. And with luck comes obligation. You owe a debt, and not just to your gods. You owe a debt to the unlucky. I was sitting with that today, and I wondered, how have you paid that debt? It's a great question. I think about this all the time. Um, And the answer, um, I haven't. I I haven't finished paying that debt. I've got a lot of work to do. But what I try to do is in my daily life, I try to remember that. And I try to look for situations where I can do things for people without them knowing I'm doing it. Because when you do it and they know it, you create a kind of debt in them. And sometimes you, you can't avoid it, right? Every year, at the end of the year, I make my resolutions. And I try to resolve once a month to do something that's life-changing for someone. And I never get there, but I like remind myself as a goal. And so that's kind of one way. The second is I try to direct my work in useful directions where it isn't just aesthetics. This is, this is actually requires effort for me because really left to my own devices, I just tell fart jokes and funny stories. So I, I try to put what I can do to some higher use without being pompous or pretentious about it. So, but a little of that. And I try to raise my children to behave this way. I think the truth, like the truth here is I have had so much luck it is impossible to repay the debt. But it makes me happy as a person, like moving through life, to try and to think of it that way. That, that there is enormous, like, uh, it's like a life hack. That's how a Silicon Valley person would put it. To stress your own good fortune and distress or emphasize gratitude or look for causes for gratitude it's amazing the, the knock-on effects that has. It sort of creates more of itself, just like the reverse creates more of itself. So the short answer to your question is, I haven't and never will. The long answer is, I give it a shot. And of the work, are you proud of it? Very. 
I don't put it out there unless I'm proud of it. And I don't think less of it because of what happens to it out in the world. I really like what I do. And my own things interest me up to the point where they're published. And it's been uh, a sheer delight that other people are willing to kind of go along for that ride. Well, I thank you for going along on this ride with me for the show. It was a surprising but a fun one. Michael Lewis, thank you very much. Thanks, Sam. That was a preview of Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, a podcast from Pushkin Industries. You can hear more of Talk Easy wherever you get your podcasts, and we will be back here with you next week. Mm-hmm.